It is indeed a long reading, isn't it? But Revelation tells us, blessed are those who read and keep the word. So it's important that we hear it in its entirety. Um, and uh, we are fortunate that we're only hearing one chapter instead of the whole book, all at once. So, um, Revelation, a message of hope to God's suffering people. And we come today to chapter 18, which concludes this section, chapters 15 through 18, on judgment. And I think you guys haven't heard chapter 17 preached on. Would that be right? Yes. So very briefly, um, I will tell you what chapter 17 says. But first I wanted to kind of remind us of the bigger picture about Revelation. And Revelation is written, as we've heard a number of times now, to the churches who were in what is now uh, Western Turkey. It was then called Asia Minor. And they were part of the Roman Empire, a conquered part of the Roman Empire. And this letter was written to give them hope, to warn them against complacency, to warn them against um, accommodation with culture that surrounded them, and in particular that of the emperor worship, which was in direct uh, conflict with the idea that God, uh, in the person of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, was the only God to be worshipped. And to give them hope and encouragement as they were suffering, so the, the patient endurance that we've heard about. It's written... Um, also to give us the big picture to talk about the cosmic conflicts that are in behind and permeate our everyday living. And because it's written on this big scale, and because it was also written a little bit in code, it's used, it uses symbols. Somebody said to me last week, I don't know why John didn't just write clearly what he was saying instead of masking it and all these symbols. But part of the reason for the symbolic language is not just so it was a coded language so that if it fell into the hands of the people in power, it wouldn't necessarily be understood as words against Rome and those who were in power, but it's also written in symbolic language because it's meant to fire up our imaginations. It uses sight and sound and the tactility of numbers and smell uh, and all these amazing kind of almost surreal images to help uh, give us something to hold on to in a way that a mere kind of simple sentence wouldn't do. It gives us something to, for our imaginations to latch on to, to give us the bigger picture in uh, very evocative ways. Many of the images uh, can be interpreted in more than one ways. Um, and the images are, are drawn from the Old Testament largely and sometimes John uses them in the same way as they're used in the Old Testament. And so when you hear them, you hear all the echoes of the Old Testament, like one that we're looking at today, which is Babylon. Sometimes he reworks them a little bit, and so you get the echoes of how they were used, but he's used them in a new way, and it kind of spurs your imagination to see how he's using it in a new way. And as, as I know I've said before, we suffer when our reading of Revelation because we're not as familiar as we could be with the texts of the Old Testament from which much of the imagery is drawn. But the reason for the symbols are there to give us a richness to the text, to give us that, uh, the way that all those things resonate together, to give us this amazing picture of what is really going on in our world, the big cosmic picture behind the scenes, if you like. But the other reason, uh, or one of the central themes, if you like, of Revelation is that of worship. It is a book about worship. Now, worship, <coughs> I mean that in its broader sense. I don't mean what we're doing today when we sing. I don't even mean what we're doing today when we come to church and we call it a, a worship, which it is. 
but it's about giving our attention to the being and the activity of God. Worship is the central Christian activity, the central Christian action, and it is something that we aspire to be all-encompassing. You know, the summary of the law is to love God with all your mind and heart and soul and being and to love your neighbour as yourself, to, as it says in Romans 1, to be a living sacrifice. That is worship, when we give our whole being and attention to the being and activity of God. And so in Revelation, we find what perhaps is the central scene in chapter 4, where we have the throne room of God. Now, of course, that's an image. I don't really know what it is like to be in heaven with God, heaven being a description for where God is. Um, But here we have this amazing picture to show us what is the central reality of the universe, the central reality of our lives. God on his throne, surrounded by the four living creatures, surrounded by the angels, surrounded by the saints who all fall down in worship. Worship is at the heart of this book. Worship is at the heart of our lives as Christians. And this gives us the context for what we're seeing today. You know, Babylon the Great is fallen. Who is Babylon? Well, in chapter 17, uh, we see a woman draped in the most beautiful robes. She's in scarlet and purple, which were incredibly expensive materials because of the difficulty of getting those dyes in the, in the pre-synthetic dye age. They were very expensive cloths. And so she's dressed in splendor, and she's seated on the beast with seven heads, and each of those heads have ten horns. And we've met that beast, risen out of the sea, I think. There's two beasts, I forget which one is which. Anyway, we've met that beast before, and we know that beast is a representation of the devil, of Satan, of the power of evil. And she's seated upon that. And the kings of the earth and the peoples of the earth are drunk with her. With, uh, they are um, seduced by her. She is pictured as um, uh, making them drunk in chapter, chapter 17 with her fornication. Um, But in chapter 17, we see the beast turn upon her and destroy her. We see the self-destructive nature of evil. And that's a very brief synopsis of what happens in chapter 17. Uh, But essentially, in chapter 17, she is destroyed. And what we see in chapter 18 is the funeral dirge for Babylon. Babylon the Great, though the apparently great, is fallen. So I want us to think a little bit about that imagery of Babylon. Babylon is an image really rich for people who are brought up in the Judaic and the Judaic Christian tradition. You know, the historical story of the Old Testament is of Abraham being called to establish a nation, which is eventually established in Israel. And we have the um, kingdom of David, the epitome of the perfect king. But the people of Israel are not faithful to God, and eventually... At the end of Kings, we see the fall of Jerusalem. We see the fall of the southern kingdom in which Jerusalem was the capital. And the conquering power is Babylon. So Babylon stands for empires that come and destroy the people of God. That's one of the meanings of Babylon. Um, And we have that, that really plaintive psalm. You know, by the rivers of Babylon, I sat down and wept. I wept for you, Jerusalem, 
And as, uh, as I think Boney M had it rather than the psalm, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So it's very evocative because it's talking of this great power that saw the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's also a quintessential symbol of empire because not only does the words that are used here remind us of that story of Babylon, but it reminds us of other passages in the prophets that talk about other powers. Uh, one of the, the most... Um, ones that we can hear really strong echoes of is a, um, a tirade against the city-state of Tyre, which was another um, powerful uh, place in Israel's history. And this is in Ezekiel. And, and we see a list of the things that, that were bought and sold in this place. Um, you know, all these different places did business with Tyre out of the abundance of your great growth, silver, iron, tin, lead they exchanged with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Um, they, they were wares, exchanged for your wares, horses, war horses and mules. Uh, many coastlands were your own special markets and they brought you in payment, ivory tusks and ebony. They're your wares of purple, turquoise, embroidered work, fine linen and coral, rubies. Kind of, we've already heard a list like this today of all the various things that Babylon was able to buy. So, not only does it stand for Babylon and the richness of that symbolism for uh, people who knew their Old Testament, but it also stands for other empires. Um, and that's not the only passage that, that this passage would have reminded people of. I want to say a little brief word about cities because we're talking about big city empires here. Um, and that is that frequently we think of cities as a dangerous place to live. You know, they're full of crime, they're full of people living cheek by jowl and not necessarily looking after for each other. But in a New Testament times, a city, in an Old Testament times, a city was a place of refuge. They were built with walls, they kept you safe. When you went out and travelled between cities, you were at risk. Uh, you were at risk from bandits who could rob you. And we know the story of the Good Samaritan is about a traveller who was set upon by bandits and thieves. And so the walls kept you safe and you, you came into the city at night and you were safe from not only the bandits but from the wild animals that might be out there. But here we see that imagery subverted and the city becomes a place not of safety but of danger because it is a place of seduction. And we know because we've read the end of the story that this is in direct context contrast to the city that we are called into, the city of God, which comes down from heaven. There is no temple in that city because God is in the midst of his people and we are in the midst of him. And so as we read the story about Babylon falling, not only are we thinking about all the cities and empires that it represents, but we're also anticipating and looking at it in contrast to the city that we are called to be part of, the city of God. So who was Babylon to the readers who heard it? Well, it's pretty obvious to me, and I'm sure it's pretty obvious to you, that it's talking about Rome. And not only do we think, well, she's sitting on a beast with seven heads, and Rome was built on seven hills, uh, but also it was the dominant empire of the day. And all those lists of things, of gems and of 
spices and of cloth and all the ornaments and that, that list that we heard read to us, they covered the Roman Empire. I mean, they were from many different parts of it. So it is very clear that this is talking about Rome. Rome was the dominant power of the day, and Rome was the place that set itself up in direct contrast and conflict with God. Rome and its emperors saw themselves as divine. Uh, the emperors called themselves Lord and Saviour. So it's very clear that this is Rome that they're talking about. I want to dwell a little bit on the other image that we hear, and that is of, she is Babylon the harlot. Now, when we think of whores and prostitution, we think of prostitution, we think of sexual immorality. And whilst Rome, when it first started out, was a, a, a place founded on very strong virtue and family values, as it became richer and more dominant, then corruption crept in, and certainly among the wealthy classes, there was lots of sexual immorality. Um, I, when I was uh, in fifth form, uh, as part of my study of Latin, I, did a, I looked at some of the emperor's lives, and I didn't really, I think, fully appreciate what I was reading about as a very naive 15-year-old, but some of what those emperors got up to with men and women and boys and girls was quite shocking, really. And so, yes, there is sexual morality, but when we hear that word harlot used in biblical language, that's not the first thing that springs to my mind. Because when we look into the Old Testament again, we see that, that harlot is used as a symbol for religious infidelity, for apostasy. And so various places are called harlots, and Nahum Nineveh is called a harlot. Uh, in Isaiah, Tyre is called a harlot. <clears throat> We even have passages where Jerusalem, because of her faithlessness and her seeking after other gods, is called a harlot. Hosea, famously, was married to a prostitute as a living symbol of religious infidelity, of idolatry, of seeking after other gods. So here we have a direct um, threat to worship of God, and that's what the calling Babylon the great harlot really means. Now, it's along with the religious uh, idolatry that Rome asked of Christians. It's also talking about the seduction of wealth and of power and, and that those things are getting in the way of worship. Let us remember that worship is our central activity and the worst things that can happen are the things from the outside that obstruct and get in the way of that worship. Um, and so here we have Rome and her power and her wealth and her luxury, capable of seducing us into infidelity, into idolatry. Into idolatry. And in direct contrast to that, we are called to be the bride of Christ. I read one commentator who talked about how, in contrast to Babylon the harlot, we are to be the chaste harlot. We have been sinful, and our sins are now covered with that white linen, which is the robes that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so we are seen as a chaste bride. Uh, and that, again, is in direct contrast. So we have the city of God in contrast to the city of Babylon. We have the, us as the bride of Christ in contrast to Babylon, the harlot. The next thing I want us to think about as we look at this passage is, who is mourning her? 
So we see the kings of the earth. Now, this, this is not the emperors in Rome. These are the other uh, powerful figures who have aligned themselves with Rome because there they've seen their opportunity to stay in power and to exercise power. They've been seduced by the power that Rome offers them. And they are afraid when Rome falls. Rome has fallen. What they thought was the great stability that was going to give them their own strength and their own power, in an hour, it's gone. And the merchants hiss and the mariners wail. They have built their lives around the wealth that Rome offers. For them, being able to buy and to sell and to accumulate wealth was the be-all and end-all. And they have seen, in an hour, it's gone. They have seen how ephemeral seeking after wealth is. And they all stand at a distance from Babylon as she falls. They are afraid to get caught up in that fall. And I find it interesting to think about that the fact that we see in... Um, chapter 6, when the sixth seal is opened and there are um, natural calamities and earthquakes and the kings of the earth and all the people who follow after them, they hide and they're hiding and saying, who can st stand the wrath of the lamb? And when we see the trumpet sound and the plagues come out of them and the parts of the earth are destroyed, do we see people repenting? No, it, Revelation tells us. Yet the kings of the earth and the people of the earth did not repent. And here we see them standing in mourning for Rome, for Babylon, for the powers of wealth, uh, for the seduction of, power, um, of wealth and power that they have sought after, and uh, whom they have found their identity, their very being, is tied up in that. And those things have gone. And the question is asked, they're standing at a distance from it. They have survived the fall of Rome, or the fall of Babylon. Are they yet now going to repent? Are they now going to, having lost what makes them who they are, their false security, are they going to take this opportunity to seek after true wealth, to seek after true treasure, to seek after true power? We're not told the answer to that, but I find it interesting to think about what is the response when we see the events of Revelation unfolding? And the third thing I want to concentrate on is in the middle of all this morning, we hear this cry, come out of her, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you suffer the same fate. Now, being called to come out is another um, resonant phrase. Abraham is called away from his family so that he can follow God and become a, a blessing to the nations and a light to the world. Lot is called out of Sodom, lest he be tainted by Sodom, lest he be caught up in its destruction. And I would like to point out that whilst in the story of Sodom in, in Genesis we hear about the sexual immorality there, in the prophets, we hear that Sodom was condemned for other sins, including particularly in hospitality. Uh, so it's, it's, again, a message about um, walking away from not just sexual immorality, but uh, other forms of immorality. Moses' job was to call the people out of Egypt. 
And why was he calling them out? He was calling them out so that they could go and worship God. Pharaoh was judged because he wouldn't let the people go and worship the one true God. So the people are called out by Moses, where they learn in the desert not to be slaves. And then they come into Jerusalem and they're called out by calamity at the end of uh, their time into Babylon. And there they have to learn how to be the Lord's people out of Jerusalem in a foreign land, in a strange land. And here we see that they're called out of Babylon so that they don't suffer her fate. They're called to remember who they are. They're called to capture their first loves again. They're called not to be complacent in wealth and luxury that they might see around them. And for the people who are hearing this message, initially, there were some very real uh, hard choices that were made. They had the example of Antipas, who had already followed that call to stand uh, against the uh, call to worship the emperor, and he'd been killed for it. And this is what was facing them. But they also, if they chose not to be part of a guild and to ex exercise their job, and they chose because part of being a guild was to worship the emperor, and it was kind of a normative part of what you did when you joined a union, so to speak, then they were facing a life of poverty. So this call to come out was a very real... Um, was a choice of very real consequences for them. Now, I want to emphasise that power in and of itself is not a bad thing. You know, whenever we get human institutions, and uh, for example, the church, we end up with, once it gets to a certain size, a hierarchy. But our exercise of power um, is based, or should be based, on the example of Jesus, who chose not to grasp onto all that he was entitled to, but chose to give himself for the church. Our example of power is that of servanthood. It's no accident that our words for the people that we put in leadership, priest and minister and pastor, they're all words for either servant or for a caring person like a shepherd. So yes, there's nothing inherently wrong in power, but the way we exercise that power is incredibly important. And our example is that of servanthood. And I want to say there's nothing also wrong with being in trade. And there's nothing wrong with working for a living. Obviously, we all need to do those things. And I don't think there's anything wrong in liking nice things and in having appreciation for beautiful things. The problem comes when those things get in the way of worshipping God, when they become our be-all and our end-all. And so we are called to think about where our treasure is. Jesus spoke an awful lot about money, and he told us that we cannot worship both God and mammon. And he told us the story of the rich man, the farmer, who had lots of grain, and he built himself two big barns to store all his grain, and he was patting himself on his back and saying, how fortunate am I, I can now live in ease. And yet that very life, that very night, his soul was demanded from him. We are told not to store up treasure on earth where it can rot and rust or where thieves can get at it, but to store it up in heaven for where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So these are the things that we are called out from. You know, one of the things I find 
perhaps most difficult when it comes to this point in the sermon is, when I look at our culture today, what do I think is the dominant empire? What is the Rome, the Babylon of today? One of the things that has always been um, something that I've thought about a lot since uh, I was at university and read Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger is the impact of consumerism on our lives. Now, I've already said there's nothing wrong with working, there's nothing wrong with training, trading in and of itself, but we live in a society that, that is based on capitalism, and the more we have capitalism without a balancing of we need to look after people in society as well, the more we get an increasing difference between who has money and who has not, and that power differential and the exercise of that power badly. Um, and so I think that one of the tensions for us as people who live in a wealthier part of the world is how do we actually grapple with that dominant force in our life, the, uh, the multiple advertisements we see encouraging us to buy more and that we'll feel happier and more satisfied and better if we have this particular item or wear that particular clothes or these shoes. And in some ways that's even more dominant with uh, social media and people packaging themselves up and putting out on pictures only when they look the best and only when they're wearing particular brands. So we have to really think, where is our heart? Where is our treasure? Is this getting in our way of giving our attention to God, of worshipping God? But the other thing I wanted to talk about, which I think is part of the culture of our times, and increasingly so, and is complicated to talk about, and I'm a little bit diffident about doing it, is, is perhaps an increasing sense of entitlement, an increasing use of rights language. And again, this is difficult because it's not black and white. It's not like rights language is wrong. And I hear myself using it as well. And I'm absolutely behind certain things. I believe, for example, that every child should have proper food and a good education and a loving home free, free from being assaulted and hurt and be, be cared for and loved by the people who have that duty for them. So I think that rights language definitely has its place. But... We need to be careful that we're not putting our rights ahead of everybody else's rights. And perhaps the simplest example I can give of that uh, is thinking about America and the right to bear arms. Where in America, the, my right to have whatever gun I like trumps your right to live free from the risk of gun violence. Uh, now, it's very easy to look across to a culture that is so different from our own and, and make a critical comment, but it's perhaps the simplest and most easy example I can give of where actually my right might not be the most important thing in the picture. And I'm reminded that part of worshipping God is to love, each, to love one another uh, as we love ourselves. We are called to be a people who care deeply for each other. You know, when, when, that mess, when that word is said, it's said to the disciples as a group, not just to individuals. Uh, when the Ephesian church is called to capture its first love and to show its passion and care, it's to, it is a church. As a church, we are called to love each other. Uh, Jesus said, said it as a, um, a test, if you like, by this the world will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. It was said of the early church, my goodness, how they love each other. And I have seen in this church examples of how people have cared for um, 
members who are, were at need of care in particular times, and I've been recipient of care myself, and so I know that it is something we are capable of as a church. But I think that as a, as a church, it's something that we need to remember, that part of worshipping God and having God at the centre of our lives is not only paying attention to him and what he is doing, but paying attention to each other and loving each other. And the more we can do that, and the more we spend time being as a community, the more we will be actually truly be able to be hope for Whangarei. Amen.